He's a fascinating fellow. Jordan B. Peterson. Tell? Yeah. Why do we have Dr. Jordan B. Peterson on well, the show today? Wise man. I've never heard anything this guy has ever said that I disagreed with. Oh, so that's it. He agrees with you, or you agree with him. <laughs> it's a mutual this guy was, kumbaya This guy's been group. copying me. Yeah. He's um, been obviously reading my Facebook rants and stuff, <laughs> yeah. uh, stalking me. <laughs> no, you know, smart guy, and uh, thought through all the questions. Yeah, but, yeah, but give me and, one thing that he has said that you really kind of went, oh, oh it'd be boy. great to get him on the show. One thing. Uh, what, what I, the, I can't pick one The thing. gender thing. Tell me about the gender thing. Uh, what the pronoun thing? Yeah. Well, I don't. I, I can't really do justice to that whole history, but I guess he, like I said earlier, ran afoul of the PC police, and I'm I'm kind of curious to hear that's a bit just, of it about that. That's just the point right there. If someone runs afoul of the PC police, he we, must have we, something interesting. We want to say. him on this show, right? Well, that's yeah, right. because these people are like anti-thought, anti-fact, anti-human. We don't want them around. No, we want to be humans. Ladies and gentlemen, with that intro, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson joins us. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing? I'm well. You sound like you're at a bar. Where is yeah, the ra- racquetball court? Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually at my co- my cottage. Okay. Well, that'll do. That'll that'll be just fine. Dr. Peterson, I'd like to introduce you to Tal Backman. Tal Backman, Dr. Peterson. Hi. Very nice to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. Um, can you do a better job of Tal of explaining the whole gender thing and, and screwing with the PC police? What happened? Well, back in October, I got wind of Bill C-16, which is a bill that's just through its third reading in the Canadian Senate that purported to do nothing to add gender identity and gender expression to the list of protected groups under the Canadian Human Rights Act and the criminal code. The criminal code... It needed a, uh, it, it, what would you say, set up the possibility of being prosecuted for hate speech as a consequence of discrimination and harassment, re-gender identity and gender expression. That doesn't sound particularly upsetting. It's a quite a short um, bill, a couple of paragraphs long. But the thing is, is that it was linked to the Ontario Human Rights Commission website. And I don't know if you guys have had any opportunity to ever look at that website, but you might be interested in taking a look at it because it's an absolutely appalling, the Ontario Human Rights Commission is an absolutely appalling institution. And the policies that were set up on the Ontario Human Rights Commission within which the bill, bill's provisions would be interpreted are over, they're, they're, they're extreme and punitive and also based on a very a false and pernicious doctrine of identity. And so I made a video saying exactly that. Um, for one of the things that's happening, and this is happening in, in legislation and in policy everywhere in the Western world, is the insistence that every aspect of human identity, including gender identity, let's say, and sexual expression and all of these things, are either socially constructed with no biological basis whatsoever, or merely subjective choices. So when I made the video, I also pointed out that we were in danger of writing a social constructionist, postmodernist, neo-Marxist view of human identity into the law, which is exactly what we are doing. And it's not accidental either. I mean, the, the federal justice minister was asked the other day in the Senate to modify Bill C-16, or actually to modify the believe the Canadian Human Rights Act, to specifically note that you could not be prosecuted for misgendering someone. 
and that it did that the bill did not abridge constitute an abridgment of freedom of speech and she refused to even consider the amendment so that shows you exactly what's going on anyways i made those videos and it caused a lot of trouble um what is the status of all that now is it binding law oh soon to be it's already law in five provinces it's inevitable, man. It's coming. It's, it's so, inevitable. So break this down for the practical dude on the street. This means what to me? It means that the people who want to police your language are increasingly... Getting more power. More, yes. And look, it's not only that they're getting more power over the man on the street. They're getting more power over the child in the school. So, for example, the other day, this is related, I just went and reviewed the Ontario Teachers, I think it's Federation or Association, I don't remember, it represents all 80,000 Ontario teachers. Um, I reviewed their new uh, curriculum for for uh, junior uh, for kindergarten to junior high, and it's exactly the same thing. It's complete, it's complete social constructionist, neo-Marxist, postmodern uh, rubbish. Rubbish. I was just going to say the word rubbish. Okay, it's so- nothing but propaganda and. Hold on. When when um, Kevin Pillar uh, on the Blue Jays, uh, some the pitcher did some kind of a cheeky thing where he sped up his pitch and caught him off guard a little bit, and so Kevin Pillar is caught on camera using the F word, uh, not that F word, but the 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 uh, homophobic slur. Yeah, the quote oh, yeah. quote unquote homophobic slur. And it's yeah. just embarrassing that I even have to, you know, say the F word instead of saying the word in in relation to this story because we live in Canada and the the uh, the word police are out there left, right, and center. Um, and my take on all of this is, uh, as you know, an ignorant outsider, heterosexual, middle-aged, you know, idiot, idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Really, uh, he he gets suspended for this and and, and fined and uh, and there's an outrage and then he comes out and says, "Oh, I'm, I was a horrible person. I'm so sorry. I should never have. And oh my goodness, and I'll never do it again." And blah 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 blah. Really? Now, what am I missing? Well, the thing is, is that it's obvious that people can be rude and they can say things that perhaps with more thought they wouldn't say. Sure. It's not really the issue. The issue is that. We're expanding the domain of hate speech in Canada. I suspect that within, I would say, five years in Canada, that challenging the doctrine of social constructionism will be regarded as hate speech. Like I just read today, for example, there's a Helsinki accord that the Europeans are lining up to sign like mad, except for the Latvians, because they objected to it, to make a doctrine of the idea that we live in a patriarchal structure and that women are... are, are to be regarded as systemically oppressed by men, that men are in, basically, in general, systemic, systemic discriminators and and uh, and misogynistic, basically racist. All of that being built into the bloody legal structure in the West. That underlying assumption, and this Bill C sixteen is part and parcel of the same conceptual nightmare that's just that's taken over the universities, for example. Yeah. So um, just to just to go back to some, this is Tal here, by the way. Um, just to go back to something that you I'm sure, to Tal, earlier. he can delineate between the two of us, uh, okay. because your questions sound slightly different than my questions. Uh, my question sounds like, why can't we say the F word, man? You know? I like purple. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Well, where I was going is, I mean, just kind of stepping back more broadly, um, thinking about all this stuff, I mean, y- 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 you know, it seems to me that the West is in crisis 
Okay, would you agree with that? We're in more trouble than we think. Right, we, I, I would I would say that. And so, yeah. w- w- what would you identify as the the kind of the root causes of that crisis, and what are the solutions? Well, I'd put most of it I'd put most of it at the feet of the universities. We've been training, well, we've been publicly publicly subsidizing and training um, anti-Western propagandists hmm. actively in the universities since the late 1960s, and. And we've produced enough of them now so that they've taken over the leadership positions in most mid-level, mid-to-high-level bureaucracies. Not always politically, not always at the highest echelons of the, of the, uh, of the bureaucratic structures, but, but they've taken over pretty much everything other than that. And that's exactly what they're taught to do in universities, which is to occupy positions of mid-level power and to push the postmodernist doctrine. And I don't know, I tried to do some rough calculations. I figure we probably produced at least 3 million people like this in North America in the last 20 years. And they're not sitting around doing nothing. You know, a lot of them are, are subsidized by the public purse to do nothing but cause political trouble and, and to train students to do exactly the same thing. And so you don't need that many radical people in order to really have a massive effect on your population, especially if nothing, if you're doing nothing but moving about politically. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And what and what are the solutions? Well, the solutions first would be for people to wake up and realize that we're not in the same country we were 20 years ago. It's not the same place. You see, Canadians, and, and rightly so, didn't pay much attention to their governmental structures. And by, by rightly so, I mean that because the country was functioning so well, it made perfect sense for people to concentrate on their own personal lives and go about their business who pay attention to their families and their jobs and all the things that reasonable people do. But we're not there anymore, not in the least. And there are threats to the Canadian structures, the Canadian structures of, of life that are manifesting themselves everywhere. And so the first thing to do is to realize that. And that's, you know, we don't have liberals. The Liberal Party, especially federally, and I would say certainly in Ontario, is no longer liberal at all. It's, it's, it's the, especially the more radical people in the parties are far to the left of what we would have expected from the NDP even only a few years ago. Hmm. Even the conservatives themselves are, are increasingly terrified to be conservative. Okay, I, I want to push pause on that part of the conversation because I want to get into belief and faith and all that kind of stuff because that's actually you know more along the lines of what we normally talk about here on the show. But I do want to come back to just the word thing that I was talking about earlier, just real quickly, because I want to be clear to our listeners before I get anybody, you know, chucking a wobbly on the fact that I said what I said. All I'm saying is when a guy of Pilar's age utters a word that is offensive to some, um, and and it was a moment of whatever, um, you know, do, do we really have to, is that the thing we need to jump on in today's day and age? Tim, you're the tree hugger in this crowd. Do you really think we needed to just hammer on Pilar for that? I think that... And do you think he needed to crucify himself, more um, likely? I, I think that words have a lot of power. And I guess, for me, the pushback is always, um, you know, yeah, we aren't the country we were 20 years ago. But to me, I... You think we're in a better place? No, not even, it's not even that. I think it's important that, you know, people who are oppressed, that we don't treat them differently. Like, Bill Maher's getting in a lot of trouble for using the N-word. 
uh, as an oppressed person, it's a negative term against a group of people. Nacho? Yes, nachos, uh, the Mexican-Americans. <laughs> and um, I think it's important that we, we, we say that is wrong. Uh, you know, if take it to a certain extent beyond that, uh, you know, that's definitely but, an important concept. But it is important to say that it is, it is wrong. Well, well just, to, just to jump in here, Tal again here. I'm, I mean, there's that. They're saying something rude. I don't, you know, sports leagues can kind of police themselves as sure. they as they wish. Whatever. I mean, to me, there's like a big, you know, much deeper, uh, more serious issue here, which is like criminalizing any questioning of of an orthodoxy, which in and of itself has uh, uh, either no substantiation in science. I mean, there's, there's no, there's there's just no. Uh, evidence for it, right. or or a, a massive weight of evidence is you know explodes it. You know, it suggests that it's absolutely untrue. Like the idea that there's absolutely no link between biology and some well, of these other issues. So you you, got, you know you challenge that, and all of a sudden, like now Britain is already going through this, where if you kind of say the wrong thing, you're you're criminally punished. Yeah. You well, know, the Chelsea police force. I don't know if you saw that last week, but the Chelsea police force in the UK put out a, a Facebook release talking to people, telling them to be careful with what they were saying on Facebook because they could face hate crime charges. Yeah. That was the police in the UK did that. And then when like 6,000 people wrote them and said, like, what the hell is going on with you people? What is wrong with you? They clarified it by, by even increasing the, the severity of the language they were using to warn people about uttering hate speech on Facebook. As if that's the problem that the UK should be facing at the moment. Yeah, I'm criminalizing bad manners, number one, and and any any and questions. Yeah, oh, that the, is well, nuts. The questions in particular. Yeah, yeah exactly. People people have no idea. Well, what's so terrible about it, in part, is that. Yeah. So with Bill C sixteen, say say imagine that you're trying to to preserve the rights of or or protect the rights of people who are transgendered, or or for that matter, we we could think about it in a broader context, protect the rights of people who are homosexual. The most powerful argument that both transsexual people and homosexual people have in relationship to their claim to have their uh, um, non-standard proclivities, let's say, recognized and protected legally, or at least to be free from discrimination on those grounds, is precisely that they're biologically instantiated. And that the transsexual people some of them make this argument all the time. They say, well, look, Matt, you shouldn't be harassing me about this because I was born this way. Okay, so let's say, no, you weren't. It was socially constructed. Let's take the doctrine that's being pushed by the very people who purport to represent these people. Well, if it's not biologically determined, then, and it's just your choice, or if it's just something that you learn, then why the hell not unlearn it and just put yourself back into the normal stream of things like the conservative people, say, have been insisting, or maybe even the two conservative people, have been insisting for 50 years. You can't have it both ways. Hmm. It can't be an intrinsic part of your identity, biologically predicated and there from birth, and socially constructed, and your own subjective whim. But that's how <laughs> right. the legislation right, is right. out now. Here's the website for you, jordanbpeterson.com, jordanbpeterson.com. Professor of Psychology at the University of Toronto, clinical psychologist, author of Maps of Meaning, the Architecture of Belief, and a whole lot of other things. Let's get into belief. A few years ago, I, you know, you and I chatted uh, yesterday or the day before about um, the fact that I kind of came out on air and said I'm no longer a certaintist. I'm no longer certain that there's a God. And uh, there's been a, 
What's more interesting to me, Dr. Peterson, in this whole arena has been the sociological reaction to that, the reaction from my peers or the reaction from those in my tribe or the reaction from those in the, in the God broadcasting industry, for example. Um, it seems like my doubt scares people. Why? Well, funny thing, of course doubt scares people because as soon as you reveal a doubt, you take out the certainty on which people are standing. You know, it's been said that you should build your house on a rock and not on sand. And the reason that you're supposed to build it on a rock is so that if things start to shake, you're, in, you're, you're solidly placed. And so people need to have something solid underneath them. And they often have an axiom of faith of one form or another that serves that purpose. And then if you challenge that, then not only do you weaken them existentially, but you, you're criticizing and undermining the, the values that they're using to orient themselves with in the world. So it's really important. The issue, though, the side issue there with regards to God is, like, God isn't actually the sort of thing that you can be certain about unless you've been, you know, blessed and he actually happened to reveal himself to you more or less in person, in which case I suspect that you'd have more things to worry about than what people were thinking of you. But, you know, even if you have a genuine religious experience, and those things are far from rare, that doesn't provide you with the kind of certainty that you can use to convince other people the way you would with scientific truth. Like, there's always an element of faith that's associated with a theological claim, and so it's actually reasonable for you to come out and say, well, I don't have the certainty I thought I did, because it isn't even obvious how you would go about having that certainty. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I mean, I've, I've been a clinical psychologist for a long time, and I've been associated with people, talking to people, who've had very strange experiences, religious and otherwise, and I would say some of them bordered on the miraculous. And one of the things that I've found, that even if you are And uh, these things happen in people's lives. Even if you do have an experience that's extraordinarily deep and religious and significant, even if it's bordering on the miraculous, the the idea that that constitutes the kind of proof that would thoroughly convince you permanently Mm. is, it's misbegotten. That isn't how people work. If, you know, if, if you saw a miracle on the street in front of you, two years from now, you'd be back to your old sinful ways. People just aren't that... No, no, and a good example of that it would be, I don't know, the Old Testament, where the Jews get all, woo, God, you're awesome, because you did this, and then a little bit of time goes by, and they go, eh, we're going to do what we want to do, and then all of a sudden, God does something cool, and, and they go, woo, you're awesome, God, and then they go back to, you know, it's just a human condition, right? What do you want, Tim? What I just want? I just want to know if, if science is certain. Sign? Science? Science. Is oh. psychology certainty? Is science certainty? Well, it, look, it, it depends, and this, it's important in a discussion like this, because it depends on what you mean by certain. Hmm. And the people who figured this out best, I think, who got it right, were the American pragmatic philosophers, and they were basically re- led by um, a guy named C.S. Peirce, who's one of the most un- unheralded American philosophers, along with William James. And they made a claim about truth, which is really so brilliant. They basically said that most of the time, you determine truth practically, and this is also the case in science. So you might say, well, is the, are the theories that, that we use to explain aerodynamics true? And the answer is, they're true enough so that you can generate an airplane from the theory and fly it. Yeah, it works. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, but it also works for bounded purposes. 
and narrowly defined bounded purposes. So it has a realm in which its application is appropriate and which could be defined as true. Is it true in some ultimate sense? Well, the pragmatists would say, to some degree, that's not the sort of question that human beings can even answer, because we don't have access to ultimate truth. What we have access to, generally speaking, are tightly defined proximal truths. And so most of the time in science, what we're looking for, broadly speaking, are theories that, that work. And we test them out in the world. We say, well, this is the theory. We'll act it out. Here's what we predict will happen if we act it out. And if it does happen, then we're going to say, well, that's true enough until we, until we can come up with something better. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a fine way of defining truth, but it, it's not exactly absolute. Do you, okay, so, wow, I just had about 37 questions come into my brain at once. If someone is, hold on, let me back this right up. Do you, let's go to evil for a second. I've been on a quest to figure out whether there is such a thing as supernatural evil, because if I can be convinced of supernatural evil, that might help me understand the reality of a supernatural good or God. Is that a foolish quest? No, although I don't necessarily know that you need the supernatural element of there. I mean, I don't think that you can really... You can't start asking serious questions about the metaphysics of good and evil until you actually come to terms with the fact of evil. Now, whether it's supernatural or not, that, that's a very complicated question, but you have to be a very brave soul, morally and philosophically, to come out with the blanket statement, I don't believe in evil. And here's why. First of all, you could consider the sign that was over Auschwitz and many of the concentration camps, right? Work will make you free. Well, the people who put that sign up were animated by a spirit, let's say, that knew perfectly well that the purpose of those camps was nothing but torture and death. And they still dared make a joke about it. Now, you can say, well, I don't believe in evil. It's like, okay, fine. It's like, how do you account for that? How are you going to account for that exactly? Are you going to say that things that happened in those camps weren't evil? If you say that, then, well, first of all, the probability that you know what happened in the camps is pretty damn low, because if what happened in those camps isn't evil, then... Then yeah, nothing is evil. <laughs> well, yes, but also then nothing is good. You know, right. That's also the problem. And right. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian author, the guy who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, you know, he thought that the Nuremberg trials were the most important metaphysical event of the 20th century because <laughs> the Nuremberg trials established the principle that there were certain acts that were so heinous that you could not use your cultural derivation as an excuse for having committed them. You couldn't say, that's just how we do it in our culture. You couldn't say, I was just following orders. And, you know, you can, you can disagree with that. And it's perfectly reasonable for you to disagree with it. But you bloody well better take a really good look at yourself if you dare to disagree with it. Because what you're basically, what you're doing is relativizing morality right down to the level of the Holocaust. And if you're going to do that, well, there are certain repercussions that are going to manifest themselves because of that. We are on the line with Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, clinical psychologist, author of Maps of Meaning, the Architecture of Belief, and so much more. But I, I just want you to get everyone to understand this this 12-part series on Tuesday evenings that you're doing at the U of T. And this is a, a series about the Bible? Yes, the next one's number four. Yes, I'm... Well, I, I'm toying with the idea 
although it's a serious form of toying, about setting up a humanities university online because you can bring education to people very large numbers in in uh, online. And if a proper education in the humanities, at least as the West understands the humanities, has to be grounded in understanding, at least knowledge of and some understanding of the biblical stories. And so I'm doing a 12-part series that's available on YouTube, looking at the psychological significance of the biblical stories. And I'm doing that, I have a method for doing that, which is that I'm trying to approach it from a, a perspective that's informed by evolutionary biology and rationality and all of the things that should go along with modern, high-end, critical thinking. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, trying to to indicate that these stories are foundational, that we've collected them for a very, very long period of time, and that they should be treated with with the respect that the foundation blocks of our culture deserve. And so I'm walking through them one by one, trying to deal with issues like, what does it mean exactly from a psychological perspective that when God spoke the world into being from chaos, when he spoke the world into being, that he used what Christians regarded as something equivalent to the Logos, which has been identified with Christ. It's a very complicated idea. It has something to do with the notion that the divine, the divinity speaks order into being through the use of something akin to consciousness and language, right. and that human beings can partake in that. And if, that they, if they do that properly, then the result is good. It's an unbelievably profound set of yeah. propositions. Okay, well, I'm going to leave the last question here to tell Backman. How much time do we have for this? You have 46 seconds. Uh, Go. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, well, first let me thank you for coming on, uh, Dr. Peterson. It's great to chat with you. Um, Okay. Well, I mean, oh, I, I could go for like two hours. I'm going to have to do my own podcast. You I'm are going to have to like uh, take over your radio show. Please do. Um, I'm sick of it. W- well, well, would you agree that when you when you kind of think it all through and you lay it out all on the on the table and crunch all the numbers that like what what this what this crisis of the West that you're talking about and I I mean I almost hate to say that because it's kind of become a cliche. I mean, the, I, I call it spengleritis. You know, it's been around for you know many decades, but. You know, it seems to be real. Um, would you agree that it kind of just traces back in the end um, along the lines of what, um, you know, Nietzsche was talking about, Dostoevsky was talking about, like a, a profound spiritual crisis. The old gods just cannot be believed in anymore by too many people. And all of the things that were sort of built upon that belief are, are you know, inevitably crumbling. And there's the, you know, and there's this kind of identity crisis that, that isn't even really being recognized as such by people yeah. who are in the throes of it. Like, would you agree with that? Great question. Yes, I, would, I would agree with that, except that I don't believe that it's inevitable. Okay. And the reason I don't believe that is because I believe that these foundational stories are more true than anything we have. We just What has to happen, though, is the sort of thing that Carl Jung rep- recommended, which is we have to stop believing these stories in the manner that, let's say, children would believe them. We have to start believing them as psychologically informed and sophisticated people so that we have to be able to understand what it means to to make the claim that there's some world-creating significance in human consciousness and speech, and insofar as it's allied with the truth, that we can participate in generating and regenerating the cosmos, at least, of experience. 
that's a very, very powerful statement. It's not something to be taken lightly, and it's, it's true. It's true. It's more true than anything else we have. So, so you're saying that the myths do not necessarily lose their power once they're recognized as, as myths and not the literal truth. Well, the thing is, I'm not so clear about what's myth and what's literal truth, you know. The, uh, there's an ancient idea that the, that the Taoists have put forth very carefully, which is that being itself is made out of chaos and order, it's made out of yin and yang. And I believe that that's, that's, that's as close to literal truth as anything we've got, because it actually turns out that it's complicated. But, you know, you might think that such things as trees and and rocks and so forth are the most real of things. But chaos and order are present in every single environment. Hmm. Order is where things happen the way you want them to, and you can predict things, and chaos is where they don't. And your very brain is adapted to the world of chaos and order. Even the hemispheric structure reflects that, so the right hemisphere is more adapted to chaotic circumstances than the left to orderly circumstances. And the fact that your brain, that's from Alcone and Goldberg, is a very well-regarded neuropsychologist. Um, the very fact that your brain has adapted to a world of chaos and order indicates that that world is real, insofar as the things that shape Darwinian evolution are real. Hmm. So the idea that this, these are merely metaphors or merely myths is wrong, but it's predicated on a misunderstanding of the fact that there are certain kinds of truths that are best expressed in myth. Gotcha. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's hold on, that's hold what on. I'm talking you, about you, in, in the biblical series. You uh, well, that's it. And I want people to go to jordanbpeterson.com if they're interested in in finding out more about these uh, these twelve part series that Dr. Peterson is doing, and uh, and also. Obviously, you know, I said this to you on the phone this week, you and I, we could rattle on forever about so many different things. We we would love to have you back as a guest, because I think you and I could talk about just atheism for 25 minutes, you know? Seems, seems highly probable. It seems yeah. highly probable. Course, one of the things that's really funny about the biblical stories is that it's attracting atheists like that, which I really think is great. That's good. That's really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. All right, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, sir, what a pleasure. And again, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get around to getting you on the show. It, it's been quite quite a uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. No problem. It was good meeting you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, uh, short break, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, just some loose ends here on the Drew Marshall Show. Stay with us.